when we talk about churches, we often talk about worship. And we classify churches by the different sorts of worship that goes on. So by that we mean, do they have drums? Do they just sing hymns? Is it just Graham Kendrick? Is it just Getty Townend? Or is it spirit-led worship? All those kinds of things. Those discussions may have a place, but last week Paul was teaching us about true worship. And he said it was not about coming to church and thinking, that's your worship bit for the week. Tick box. No, no, he said it's, it's the fact that all of life is worship. Life in the workplace, life at home, life at school, life as we travel, all of it is worship. And the picture that he used, if you remember, of these lives of worship is something of a contradiction in terms. He says, he says we're to be living sacrifices. Verse 1. But the thing about sacrifices is they're dead. And so he describes the kind of change that Jesus brings as if we are dead now. We live to worship God, to serve him. And if we want to worship like this, if we want to have that kind of a life, then then we need to grasp that we've been shown mercy. Jesus has redeemed us. We don't belong to us anymore. We belong to him. And so, because we belong to him, then we do things differently. Which means everything changes. And which means that church is a very strange place. Because everything is different. Remember verse 5? Chapter 12, verse 5. We belong to each other. It's not just a social club and we turn up once a week. It's, it's about family. It's looking around the room and thinking, I belong to these people. They belong to me. I matter to them. They matter to me. And then in verse 9 to 21 for today, he expands more of what this living sacrifice lifestyle looks like of how mercy is to change us, how we to respond to it. I want to warn you as we begin that in lots of ways this passage is quite easy to understand. But it's incredibly difficult to do. It's the kind of thing we can only do actually if we we get God's help for it. It's the kind of thing, and we'll see it again and again and again, that we can only do if we remember verse 1. We remember mercy in view of God's mercy. That must be what underpins everything. It's very easy to to split verse 9 to 21 from verse 1 to 8. Or indeed from the first 11 chapters of Romans. So that we just become legalists and we forget the gospel that underpins it. Now, verse 9 to 21, people don't necessarily agree as to who this is to what the context really is. Um, some think it's all about speaking to, about life within the church. Um, I think verse 9 to 13 is life within the church, or possibly halfway through verse 13. And then verse 14 to 21 is, if you like, life outside the church. 
Because remember, this is a potentially divided church that Paul is writing to. Do you remember, it's an olive tree and we've got these Gentile branches grafted in to the true Israel. So living in that kind of a church won't be easy. But I think verse 14 to 21 is outside the church. So firstly then, first point, verse 9 to 13, life inside the church. Let's read it again. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. We're going to group them together into sort of four clumps, four clusters of different things that we're going to focus on and think about. And the first one is there in verse 9, and it is love the foundation of it all, in view of God's mercy, love. It should be a mark of God's people, I take it, because it is a mark of God. He is love. And in love, Christ gave himself for us. And so we, in love, give ourselves to him and to one another. We love. What is love? Well, we know in our culture it's misunderstood. It, it's something that's emotional. It comes and goes. It's, it's unpredictable. We can't help who we fall in love with. But it seems to me from the Bible it's not a wishy-washy, warm and fuzzy Hollywood love. It has a moral content to it. Do you see there? We are to hate what is evil and to cling to what is good. To be a thinking love, we, we mustn't give our support and our love to things that are wrong, not of God, inappropriate for the people of God. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Seems we need to keep both those things in balance as well, because if we get one without the other, we get into a bit of a pickle. So to hate what is evil without clinging to what is good, well, we have a self-righteous attitude to love what is evil sorry, to love what is good without hating what is evil it produces a sentimentalist it's soft emotion, emotional self-indulgent now we need both hate what is evil cling to what is good it'll mean we're not indifferent if church family members are off track but in love we will chat to them about it means we will love them enough to say the hard things to not let stuff go so it has a moral element more than that it's to be unselfish and humble verse 10 be devoted to one another in love honour one another above yourselves So would you call yourself a worshipper? And if you would, well, how devoted are you to other Christians? Do you remember, this is true worship. This is living sacrifice lifestyle. And that means we're to be devoted to each other 
in love. It seems to me often we think, well, how, how am I doing as a Christian? Am I a worshipper? Well, then, how am I doing on my own? In, in my quiet times, with me and God. But it's striking, isn't it? It's perhaps a better question to ask, how am I doing with others? Am I devoted to them? It's countercultural as we consider what authentic Christian living means. It's not just about us and God, it's about us and them. Honour one another above yourselves. Literally, that's to outdo one another in honour. What does that mean? Philippians 2, verse 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. To love humbly means we put them first. Always. And the Jews in Rome are thinking, well, we're the chosen people. And the Gentiles are thinking, well, we're the special grafted in branches. And Paul says, love one another. Be devoted to one another. The diversity in church will always mean there's the potential for conflict. Because we want to do things differently. And Paul says, no, don't don't split off into Jewish and Gentile factions. Don't undo what the gospel has done Love each other. First cluster, then love. Second one is commitment. In view of God's mercy, be committed. Verse 11. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving or, or slaving for the Lord. I take it we're to have the right sense of urgency in living for Christ because, because we know the importance of the gospel. We know what his mercy means. Never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervour. Slave for the Lord. Maybe you've been a Christian for a while. And if you're honest, you feel a bit jaded. And you look back on your younger days and you cringe because you were a bit naive and a bit overexcited. But you're all grown up now. And it's okay. Now Paul says, keep pressing on for Christ. Keep zealous in your walk with him. Because of his mercy. He's not saying don't rest. He's not saying you have to use every single hour of the week. He's saying you can have a break. You're allowed to sleep. But keep your spiritual fervour. Because of his mercy. We've known his mercy and so we long for others to know that mercy too. Thirdly, steadfastness, verse 12. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction and faithful in prayer. We keep going. Even when it's hard, we keep going. We're in it for the long haul. We have, we have the big picture in mind. Keep steadfast. One of the problems, I worked in advertising and marketing for a while, so I remember adverts, other people don't. But do you remember that Hagen-Dazs advert from a long time ago? It was, it was a kind of 
spoof 70s human experiment and there were people eating hagen dazs and they were chanting, pleasure is the path to joy. Pleasure is the path to the joy. Anybody? No. Okay, YouTube it, that's fine. <laughs> pleasure is the path to joy. But that's rubbish. That's not true. Pleasure is not the path to joy. It might be the path to, to happiness. But joy is deep and it's not easily shaken. Happiness comes and goes as you finish your 500 mils. Joy carries on. Ice cream is nice. It can give us pleasure. But joy comes from something certain. And the certainty of our joy comes from the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and he will come back because we're to be joyful in hope. And God has promised he will return. And God keeps promises. Which means when hardship comes and when suffering comes and when affliction comes for the Christian, then we can be patient. Because we know it's only for a bit. And in the light of eternity, it's pretty small. Be patient in affliction. Be steadfast. And where do we fall down in our steadfastness? Where does it often go wrong first? Prayer. Verse 12, be faithful in prayer. Paul knows us. He knows what we're like. He knows our fickle, flighty human hearts. And so he encourages us to press on in prayer. Be joyful in hope. Be patient in affliction. And be faithful in prayer. Do you want God to get you through, to keep you focused, to keep you godly in the hard times? Then be patient in affliction and joyful in hope and faithful in prayer. Fourthly, generosity. You see there we are to share with God's people, the Lord's people who are in need, verse 13. We're to be a people who love and therefore we will help them. We will have open hearts and open houses and open diaries and open wallets. When people ask us for help, we won't whine about it and moan about it and think, oh, them again. We will love them. We will be generous with God's people who are in need. Even when, and especially when, there's no chance in them repaying. Even when, and especially when, they're very different from us. Maybe the people we don't like that much at church. Maybe from different factions and cliques and groups within the church family. It's probably not going to be a Jewish and a Gentile group, as was probable in Rome. There may be different age groups. Maybe different ethnic groups. Maybe different home groups. He says, be generous and share with the Lord's people who are in need. God has been generous to us, and so we're generous with others. But then it's round about here, I think the passage changes focus. I think we move from, from within to without. And he says to us, Magdalene Road Church is to be utterly countercultural, 
to be a very strange place, but it's not to be isolated. Walden Road Church, you're not to be of the world, but you are to be in the world. Paul doesn't just leave us at verse 1 and say it's just about you and God. He, he doesn't leave us at verse 13 and say it's just about you and your mates and a holy huddle. He says, no, no, move out into the world. Live in the world. Rub shoulders with people through the week. She needs a job. She's going to spend most of her time in the office. He has neighbours and friends and a sports team. They're in class with people who aren't Christians. There are mums and dads at the school gates they want to chat to. How does the grace and mercy of God influence how they live? So verse 14 to 21, life outside the church. I'm going to read them again. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, my dear friends. Believe room for God's wrath. For it's written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. If in doing this you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It seems to me conflict is a natural, everyday outworking of being a Christian or at least of being a Christian in the world. It's sandpaper, it's this incompatibility of of their values and our values coming together and rubbing up the world the wrong way. And what are we to do about that? Two things that we'll look at from these verses. The first one is an interesting one, and it's, it's not taking revenge I don't know if you spotted that theme as we read it through again. Again and again and again, it rears its head. This is a church experiencing sandpaper. This is a church going through hardships. So have a look at some of those do-nots with me. Verse 14, do not curse. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. A little later, do not be conceited. Verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Verse 19, do not take revenge. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil. Because for me at least, one of the prime reasons this seems to be about life outside the church because the intensity of the language seems to imply that. This isn't factions and squabbles within. This is... God's people being persecuted. This is, how do you live, Christians, when people hate you? Do not take revenge. And why does he tell them this? Well, because it's part of our natural, sinful selves. Our bodies that that want to do these things. 
These bodies of flesh that we still live in, these old minds with old ways of thinking and old ways of reacting. We want to take revenge. We're not taught how to do it. I have a daughter, Abby, who's not even two yet. I have not taught her how to hit Josh back. But she is very good at it. She's an expert. And we begin our search for revenge with tit-for-tat squabbles and scraps in the playground. And then we grow up. And we have subtle emotional manipulation and blackmail to take revenge over people who hurt us and who wrong us. We want them to pay for what they did to us. We're in a corner. And so we lash out. We say something we regret. We naturally want to take revenge. But in view of his mercy, we stop. We bite our tongue. We don't hit them back. And if people persecute us for our faith, verse 14, we bless them. And if they wrong us, verse 17, we don't repay anyone evil for evil. Despite what the saying goes, two wrongs make two wrongs. Two wrongs do not make a right. And why don't we wrong them back? Have a look at verse 19. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Verse 19 and 20. This picture of heaping burning coals on their heads. It sounds slightly barbaric. And there's a whole load of ink being spilt and a whole load of different ideas out there as to quite what this actually means. What we do know is what we're meant to do. Verse 19, because that's pretty clear. We are not to take revenge, my dear friends, but to leave room for God's wrath. So regardless of not quite understanding the image, we don't take revenge. Some point out that there's an ancient Egyptian ritual whereby a penitent person would carry a basin of hot burning coals on their head as a sign of their repentance, a sign of them being sorry for what they've done. It may be here that there's a sense that the kindness that we show them is meant to make them sorry, so that they might be repentant. not convinced I agree with that. But it's an interesting thought. One writer puts it like this. They say the gospel is about enemies, that is us, who have been overcome through powerful pursuing love until we laid down our weapons. We are in turn to look for opportunities to overcome our enemies using similar strategies. When possible, we engage in guerrilla warfare that takes enemies by surprise as we were taken by surprise by God's tender mercies. Apparently coals might start falling on an enemy's head when we use battle strategies that are opposite of what the enemy expects. No doubt burning coals will get a person's attention. They might even arouse a dormant conscience and an awakened conscience is a step towards repentance and faith. There is nothing shocking about retaliation and revenge. Everyone does that. We aim for the unexpected. So challenge number one then is not to get your own back. Regardless of what they did or what they said 
We don't seek revenge. We leave room for God. The second challenge seems to be lifestyle. And Paul gives us a couple of helpful pointers, again, as we glance back over those verses together. And we've seen that we're to live in the world, because the temptation for us can be that we put up quarantine walls to not get too close to people. Or to be so busy with church that there's actually no time to go and see non-Christians. We run from meeting to event to meeting and we cut ourselves off. But it seems to me the words imply real emotional proximity. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Striking, isn't it? If we don't know our colleagues, if we don't know our neighbours or our flatmates or our course mates or even our family, then how do we rejoice with them as they rejoice and mourn as they mourn? We're to be involved in their lives. We're to be friends. Get your colleagues round to your house for a meal. Go out when the office goes out. Head out with the sports team. Have, have friends over and, and chat at the school gates with people. It seems to me there's to be a real proximity with the world in verse 15. It's been an encouragement in our home group the last few, few months to hear of folk who've, whose colleagues have hunted them out because they've been having a hard time. A teacher at a school in Abingdon and one of his colleagues has been on long-term sick, and they've gone round to see the person from Northern Road because they're friends. Because when life is falling apart, then they can rely on this guy who's a Christian. Be involved in people's lives. Another way in which we're to be involved as well is that we're to be humble, verse 16. We're to not be proud, but be to willing to associate with people of low position. I don't know what people of low position means in your week. I don't know who they are. It will definitely mean we have to be brave as we go and speak to them. It will definitely mean we have to stick out a bit and be a bit different. Maybe it's that person in the office or that neighbour who's it's just a bit weird and everybody avoids them. Maybe that person just doesn't quite fit in or that homeless guy that we blank each week, each day on our way home from work or, or as they come into church lunches, whatever it might be. The gospel breaks down barriers so that we're willing to associate with people that other people don't want to. And we might lose face as we associate with them, but we're to do that anyway. And then verse 21, as he finishes final uh, lifestyle pointer that Paul shows us in verse 21. He says Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. It seems to both illustrate and summarise the verses we've just seen. Don't take revenge. Don't hit back. Do live peaceably. Do persist in kindness. Do be close to people who mourn. Be close to people of low position. And so overcome evil 
by doing good. And you look back at last week and you look ahead at this week and think, what? How do I do that? There is no way I can manage it. I struggle just to be a Christian and to love Christians, let alone engaging in that kind of proximity way with people around me. People week by week who just wind me up and it's all that I can do not to shout at them. How do I live like that? Verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. You see, his grace and mercy transforms us. They're the batteries that keep us living that way. When we want to see how to love people in a costly way, then look to the cross. Look to Jesus. If you want to see somebody who was committed or who was generous or who was steadfast, look to Jesus. If you want to see somebody who, who modelled how not to take revenge, how to be in the world and in people's lives but just utterly different, utterly distinct, then look to Jesus. Jesus. 